powerful show in store for you, including an expansive conversation with Cambada, a commentary on the Jizza, Labels, and Flat Earth Theory, an exploration of the history of hip-hop sampling and the evolution of rap music with Nate Patron, the return of Rob Sonic along with H-Prism of Antipop Consortium to discuss the ethics of sampling, a rundown of new music releases, and even more. First off, it's an honor to introduce... Cambada! There are phrases like, you can see the universe in a grain of sand, or everything is everything. Yeah. Which are basically saying that if you zoom in close enough and examine something carefully enough, you'll find infinite complexity, universal truths, etc. And I feel like your lyrics are like that. You, you pack a lot into a single line with sometimes quadruple meanings, if not more, and references to really expansive concepts and fields of study in a way that just from examining a small chunk of what you're saying, someone could find themselves in a deep rabbit hole of mythologies and spiritual systems and much more. So if you don't mind, I'd like to just go through some of your rhymes and have you unpack them for us. Is that cool? I'd be honored to, man. And I'm, I'm honestly uh, appreciative of your observation of what I'm doing. A lot of people kind of just take it for granted as just, you know, rap. But it's definitely more so I'd be honored to, you know, extrapolate and go deep. Awesome. So let's start with this line from The Conjuring off your album that came out last year, Holy Ghost 2. The line is simply, Don't know evil, no evil, no me. Yes. It mean, that, that means two things. It means I don't know evil and no evil knows me, but it could also mean I don't know evil, but I know that evil knows me. So it's, it's both sides of the coin. It, it means that there's things that you know that you don't know, and there's things that you don't know that you don't know. So there are evils that I don't know and that also don't know me, and there's also evils that I know that know me. Yes, you definitely go into uh, the dynamics, the duality of, of good and evil. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a fence that us as human beings all straddle and we're very uncomfortable with accepting. For sure. Also, from that same album in the song, Yah, Yahawashai, that's how you say it, right? Yep, Yahawashai, exactly. Yahawashai. You say... Chakra rise from the sacrum if you got a spine. 33 vertebrae are levels that you gotta climb. And the number 33 comes up a lot in your lyrics. It's the title of one of my favorite songs on your new album. And I'm sure a lot of listeners know that it's the supposed age of Jesus when he died. It relates to human DNA. There's 33 degrees of Freemasonry and there are plenty other instances of the number coming up in uh, various esoteric fields but um if you could tell us about the the hindu or yogic references that you're alluding to here and anything else about what the number 33 means to you that would be awesome so 33 is uh, uh if you're in a numerology or in gematria it's often a master number um that's relative to the levels in masonry. 
Um, the top level 33 is considered a master mason. Um, also, you have 33 vertebrae in your spinal cord. It also correlates with the age that uh, Jesus was when he made his final transition from human to strict, strictly a celestial being. Um, it's also, I believe, the number of years it took to make Solomon's temple. Um, and it also happens to be my age that I turned this year in 2020, which just happens to be the year of complete clarity. Uh, you know, and sometimes when something gets clear, it doesn't mean it gets nicer. Um, so in the, the sacrum is actually the bottom of the spine. It's where would the tail would be. Um, sacral sacrum sacrament, it all has to do with this sacrifice, sacrilegion. These words all correlate with some aspect of, of giving. Mm. And it just so happens that the bottom of your spine is also where your rear is, where you uh, defecate, where, where your sacrifices become, you know, your physical. So uh, 33 has a lot of symbolism. It, it, I mean, it, it goes deeper from there, but that's just uh, uh, a couple layers of, of why I use that number so much. Yes. In the same song, the lyrics go on prana-wise. I'm Muhammad when personified. Anunnaki, I charted the Gospels, the Masonics hide. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so Muhammad is considered a, uh, a basically a, a, a very sacred entity that was basically the messenger of God. And the word Yahweh Shai, Yahweh is God, and Shai is the aspect of the Son of God. So we're literally talking about just another aspect of the Buddha, the Christ, the, the Muhammad. And the prophet is the spokesman of God. And of course, I'm speaking hyperbolically. Um, I'm not speaking directly. I'm a human, flesh and human I'm a man, just like anyone else. But when I'm in this state of you know, divine revelation and I'm writing these rhymes and I'm pulling directly from the word, it just happens that Yahawashai rhymes with Muhammad personified. And um, if you know about the Anunnaki um, in the Sumerian, I guess, mythos or actual, in, in, in some cases, it's considered fact. Uh, the ancient Sumerian uh, ruins, they found emerald temp templates, which were said to be, they said to become directly from the Anunnaki, who are an alien, a superior alien humanoid race from the Sirius B Andromeda galaxy. Um, and they basically came here and they're the ones who kind of fathered mankind. They took the, uh, bipedal hominids that were here and spliced their alien DNA into them and created the super creative expanded humans that we are now. If you believe in that, the Anunnaki, they're kind of like the father, the human father of man. And if I'm the one who jotted the, the gospels of the Anunnaki, then essentially I am, that, that goes back into the Muhammad, uh, you know, Elijah Muhammad or Muhammad or uh, Farood Muhammad were the scripts of God. So if I'm the one who is the translating piece from the Anunnaki to man, what I'm speaking in this song is essentially what the Masonics would have hidden from, you know, civilians in the times. Now we're in a time where you know, everything kind of gets thrown in a loony bin. Everything's conspiracy. So you, whether we're speaking the ancient secrets of man or not, there's no reason for them to cover up it anymore because it's so saturated 
that it no longer has its value. But this kind of divine knowledge that we're throwing around here would have been directly the the math, the sacred math, the, the golden ratios that were given to us as tools from whether it be some kind of ethereal God or some kind of exo-esoteric God, or it could just be us, but in a higher form. So that's essentially what I'm saying. And I just want to point out to the listener too, how amazing it is that just in those two lines, you're referencing, you know, Hinduism or Vedism, uh, Islam, Sumerian mythology, uh, ufology, the European magical traditions slash conspiracies. Um, just you pack so much into those lines. It's, and then, you know, that can send someone on a, a deep rabbit hole into like just studying any one of those references. Yeah. I noticed that when I rhyme things, um, completely, it it does the math for me. It kind of, it finds the perfect, somehow there is this, there is this phenomenon that happens with language, specifically modern American English. That allows you just to, I mean, it, the etymology of it is beyond math. It's beyond, it's a miracle. And I run into them all the time in, in rhyme. It just so happens that everything rhymes. I don't even have to, I don't even have to try hard. It's like, I find myself researching the references after I already found them um, a lot of the time. So a lot of times I'll run into rhyme sequences and be like, hold on, let me make sure that's right. And then I'll go into it and say, oh my God. I'm, you know, when, when I plug in the numbers, I'm coming up with new formulas as I'm doing it, you know? So it's, it's been experience for me too. Yeah. That reminds me of something, uh, Ram LZ said, are you familiar at all with Ram LZ? Mm-mm. No, I'm not. I'll look him up. He, he is now deceased, but yeah, he's definitely worth, uh, looking up. He made his mark in the, like the graffiti scene in the, uh, New York in the eighties. And then also got into rapping and, but yeah, his, uh, his whole mythology is really interesting. And he talked about how rapping was a, a form of connecting with the outer dimensions when you're searching for a, a word to rhyme with whatever you've, uh, started. And he put it much more eloquently than I could, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try and send you a link to, to some Ram LZ stuff. Cause he's amazing. That'd be appreciated. Thank you. Anyway. Um, yeah, I want to keep looking into your lyrics, but I'd also like to take a, a detour here since we've been also getting into it a little bit. What exactly is your relationship with spirituality and religion? Do you subscribe to a certain belief system or tell me what your system of belief is, if, if anything? I guess it would be uh, a directly applied philosophy that's, I guess, similar to Bruce Lee or what you would see in mixed martial arts. I started off going to a Hebrew church, a black uh, Hebrew church that I got baptized in, into in, on, when I was 13 years old. It was basically, uh, we read out the old, old Testament of the Bible. We did very older traditions, very older traditions. We recited directly from the Bible. Um, I was one of the only kids there, young men there. So I had to study the Bible at a young age. So that's kind of where, where it started. But as I grew up, um, you know, and I, I began to get more questions about things, it led me from it. I saw so much limitation in the fact that it doesn't really allow you to seek outward study. Like if you're in the Bible, you're in the Bible, no other book, 
You don't need any other book. You don't need any other explanation. Uh, so once I got older, I just kind of, you know, let it be until I got into marijuana and psychedelics. And then that's when I started applying metaphysics and my natural innate compass kind of guided me. I, I just kind of trusted myself. And what I've been doing is just uh, going through everything. I, I've, like you said, Eastern, Eastern philosophy, Eastern religion, uh, all forms of mysticism and dark magic from, you know, Aleister Crowley to John D to Bobby Hammett to Phil Valentine's, you know, of course, Alan Watts, Terrence McKenna. Um, and then of course my own experiences, uh, on psychedelics has just brought me to a place to where I just have no belief except for the belief that all is possible really. And that all is mental. Um, and so I really just keep myself like water. Um, I'm just open to it all. And you're obviously well-educated on this stuff. Is it all just self-taught reading books or have you actually taken theology courses? How are you learning all this stuff? So all of it's self-taught, never was able to pay attention in school. I read very few books in the physical sense. I do go through them, but it's very hard for me to go front to back on a book. I do audio books. My favorite form of learning is to play a video game, put it on mute, and then play audiobooks. I haven't played video games in a while, but uh, when I did, it was four years between 2011 to 2015 that that's what I would do every night before I went to bed. I would turn on the Xbox, and for three or four hours, I would just go through the audiobooks. And I was able to go through a lot of the divine text, the Bible, a lot of the sutras, a lot of the, uh, you know, of course, Tao Te Ching, which is my favorite. That's really the only book you need to listen to to figure out uh, the dualistic nature of metaphysics is look up the, the Tao Te Ching right there. Listen to that. It's like three hours. Um, and, you know, of course, the prophet book, uh, the, the alchemist, just all the best ones, you know, and then all the best movies. And you, can, you don't need to hear humans say the same shit over and over and over again. You'll notice that all superheroes movies are the same, which is exactly like the journey of Heru, which is exactly like the story of Christ and, you know, Horus and Buddha. We're saying the same shit, you know what I mean? So it's really not hard when you apply the, uh, just, just some kind of logic to it. In a lot of your lyrics, you refer to addiction and i don't know how much of it's autobiographical or fictional but in songs like 33 again and follow the phoenix you talk about being addicted to various drugs no sleep no dreams from a coke fiend a dope fiend from crack baby to crack fiend to blow speed Nosebleed, can't wear the shirt if there's no sleeves If I overdose and I die, I don't gotta go clean Numb it so I don't gotta feel it again by no means So I wonder if you can just talk about your relationship to addiction or how you regard addiction in general. So a lot of times when I refer to myself, it, 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 it's... Especially when, um, if you go into my old albums, I have the Crack Baby series. And basically this is a... This is a story, this is a fractalized story through the eyes of my father, through the eyes of me and the eyes of my son. Uh, that hasn't come yet, but it, it is based on my life. I myself have never been addicted to crack cocaine or heroin or pills. I'll say I'm addicted to weed, but that's it. Uh, so stories like uh, 33 are, is an alternate path. So I, ha I also have a cousin that literally lived that life, except for he didn't die. 
and I was born in a crack house. So both of my parents did drugs. Uh, it was, I wouldn't say it was a crack house. It was a house, a, a nice home that crack was being done in and sold out of, you know? So I was all around it my whole life. And it was the stigma growing up in an urban black neighborhood in the nineties is that it was under the influence of crack cocaine. And my biggest, my biggest thing was to not become like that. Um, instead I went down the route of psychedelics, but I could very easily see an alternate timeline of me doing this. So on fall of the Phoenix and 33 is me speaking from that alternate timeline. And, and this is, this is with most rappers. This is with actors. This is with story. Uh, this is with authors, playwrights. Um, when you're, when you're looking for inspiration, you look not only towards yourself, but the people around you. And when I speak of things in the first person, it's because the listener assumes the vicarious experience of the first person. So when I speak of me or I, that is to be assumed by anybody listening. So a song like Fall of the Phoenix or 33, even though this is not my direct, accurate storyline, I can almost guarantee that every man can find something that happened in one of those ages that they can relate to. So when I say I, it is to assume that the I is the listener, not just me. The song speaks the same way the internal voice does. The same way your conscious voice talks to you is how you hear music in your head when you're listening to me speak. It's three-dimensional. Awesome. Um, another theme that seems to run through your lyrics and one that I resonate with is being an outsider or not fitting into society. And um, I heard you mention in another interview that you didn't have many close friends growing up. And in the song Last Breath, you say, I don't get along with these earthlings. Yeah. You know, in this sort of alternative, experimental, and advanced strains of hip-hop that we try to explore in weird rap, the, the concept of the alien or the unknown is very meaningful as far as celebrating boundary-pushing sounds, um, as well as feeling separate or in opposition to societal norms. So I wonder if you can just talk about that basically being different and going against the grain. Well, yes, this is so throughout my whole life. Um, I've always felt uh, kind of like I was observing people with people. I didn't, there would be moments where I'd be in a moment. And those are some of my happiest times where I'm really in the moment and I'm able to experience with my friends or with my family. But I would say the majority of the time I find myself sitting and realizing the moment from outside the moment and then observing the moment as if I'm just a point in the, a point of observation and not like, I'm not me, like I'm almost surveilling the moment. So when it came down to friends, most of the friends that I have now I've had for more than 10 years. I mean, I wasn't a guy, I was a guy that was friendly with everybody, very, very few enemies. Um, but as far as very close friends, I've only had maybe, you know, enough five or six my whole life. All of those people are still around. And that's because those are people who share the same quality of abstract and obscure observation, meaning that I'm the guy who, you know, 
watches Tim and Eric because there are people who have a very keen sense of how awkward human movement is, speech. Uh, so, you know, I realize that I have anxiety issues, especially in social uh, areas, which heighten your adrenaline and your survival senses, which, which is what specifically makes you more observant. So I'm, no, I'm noticing everything that humans do, the whole movement of the body, the robotic habits that people have. You know, I'll go into a bar and I can hear the clatter of 30 plus overlaid voices. I'm like, of course, you know, and then sometimes I'll just sit there and I'll listen to people's conversations. And it seems like they're like it's NPC oblivion. These are like the characters in the game that in GTA that you just kind of walk up to and you trigger a response to them. And sometimes solipsistically, I feel like maybe I'm the only human being alive and everything that I see and experience is a very hyper real augmented internal reality that I'm projecting and everybody's a figment on my mind. To some extent, it's like the Truman Show and somehow I'm able to see the glitches as they're happening because I'm looking too deep. It's kind of like somebody that just jumps in GTA and immediately goes into a jet ski and tries to, to swim to the end of the stage and you realize like there's a clear wall that's all pixelated and you can't really get past that point because the programmers didn't program that far. And that's like how I experience humans all the time. It's like, oh my God, look at that. Do you see that person? It's like, uh, I've been, you know, I'm obsessed with people with Asperger's and schizophrenia. I love like Beetlejuice. Um, anybody like that because they're, they're showing the, the pure, they're kind of showing you the human brain. They're showing you the wiring with their, with their malfunction. You know, like a robot that just keeps like running into the wall. That's when you realize that it's not as smooth and coherent. And um, that kind of draws me away from being a normal person, if it makes sense. Like, I can't watch the NBA the same anymore. I realize that these are just some guys running back and forth, putting this ball in. Like, you got literally the most, like, physically gifted humans in the world just running back and forth on this floor, bouncing this ball into this hole. And it's the same game happening over and over again. It's like, <laughs> it's like when you know human physical limits, you can then predict everything and there's no need to watch it anymore, you know? So it, everything becomes redundant. Yeah, I, I identify very much with a lot of that. Um, never understood sports, thought, thought that I was in some kind of a Truman show, possibly from an early age. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, you're never really alone. You could be in a field by yourself, and there still is this sense that <clears throat> you're being watched, you know? Yeah, I think maybe... Also, just about the not really being in the moment, I think a lot more people than we might realize can identify with that, at least to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like you'll ever, if you ever hear of performance sexual anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, where you could be a perfectly functioning man that can get boners all the time. But once you get into a situation that's as intimate and as uh, real as a sexual interaction with another human being that you have to get naked with and your these thoughts and you realize, okay, wow. Okay. This person is naked. I'm about to have sex. Here's, here's my penis. There's a vagina. I just have to, okay. That right there pulls you out of the lustful. I call it like the lustful hood. 
and it pulls you out of that. Now you're out of the water. You're you're a fish out of the bowl, and you can't get wet like that. You know, so it's it's kind of like going into the warm pool. As soon as you come out, you're really cold and you're shivering. And uh, that moment, that same kind of sexual performance anxiety that uh, you can't get a boner because you're not in the in the moment. That is for life. You just can't get a boner in life. It's like okay, you can't. You can't really succeed in sports because you didn't realize, oh, my God, I'm running back and forth. There's all these humans looking at all my movements. Um, everything becomes weird. Taking pictures for me is the weirdest thing in the world because, okay, posing for pictures. What the hell am I doing? This isn't natural. I'm like, where do I put my hands? Why am I smiling? Um, my face is going to look weird. Like these fingers, these weird tentacles at the end of these arms, do I ball them up? Do I put them in a prayer position? Do I make a peace sign? You know, like, why do that? So I knew exactly everything. Yeah, you can look at everything under that microscope and drive yourself crazy. And I think everybody that feels like that is on the spectrum of autism. Right. Or what they generalize as autism. Because they don't know what it is, but they see these tendencies. Like, imagine an ultra-observant robot that's just kind of (laughs) like, it's not going to be the same. Yeah, that was something that was brought up on the last episode um, or in the realm of schizophrenia and how, you know, all artists are probably working with that to some degree, if if not all people, you know, and our society's ideas about mental illness may be completely, completely wrong in a lot of ways. Like we we're all probably suffering from some kind of what would be clinically described as a mental illness, but maybe is really just more of a natural uh, human function. Yeah. But um, you mentioned also being attracted to uh, outsider artists of sorts and uh, Tim and Eric. And I wonder if you, do you know, uh, David Liebehart, the, uh, the black guy with the puppets on Tim yeah, and Eric? David Liebehart, he, uh, he, you know, he's like, Robin Williams took my part. He's like, uh, yeah, David Liebehart. He's got all the funny, hilarious songs. He does the puppets. I love David Liebehart. I've watched every single thing that he's ever done. Him going to the sandwich shop and getting pastrami. I know everything about that guy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because I that's actually been my main uh, job for the last, like, six years is uh, doing kind of booking and managing David and making music and stuff with him. Get the hell out of here, dude. Yeah. That's been my main thing. <laughs> he's, he's amazing. He's Are the you most, talking about, he's, he's the most, a, what? This the most strange person I've ever come across. He's he continually surprises me, but uh, yeah, he's, he's a really fun person to work with. <laughs> and we're like, I love my mother. My <laughs> mom is good. <laughs> Yo, that dude, I have to, we have to talk. So you, you are, in, you know, absolutely, you know, you've met Tim and Eric. No, I mainly just worked with David. Yeah. I was, I was actually interviewing him for a radio show many years ago and he just started calling me up and we started working on music together and then he asked me to kind of like be his manager booker type of guy. So I've, I've been doing that for a long time now. Oh man, we gotta, we gotta work, dude. I would love to do a song with David Liebhardt, dude. That, yeah, would, that would be amazing. That would be incredible, man. Cause that, that's, that's the world I'm in, dude. That's, that's the, literally the only thing I watch is, is, is literally last night I was just watching uh, bedtime stories. 
uh, Tim and Eric bedtime stories. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm obsessed with them. Like I can't watch anything else. Amazing. Yes. We'll definitely, we'll definitely talk off mic about that stuff. Um, so, um, I think we can both agree you are, you are a master MC and I wonder though, let's just say lyrically, you know, leaving aside style and delivery, like lyrically, I don't know if there's anyone that, that tops you. Do you think there's any MC that is better than you lyrically? Uh, I guess there's people who are more, they've been doing it longer. So I guess they have more, they have more examples of their lyricism. People like cannabis, people like, people like K Reno, people like, uh, I mean, there's rappers like Elzai, uh, Jack Tripper, who's Jack Progresso. Uh, there's people like, uh, Nino Blast, Taboo, Cole, there's, ASAP Rock is another guy who I, I came on later. I came upon later on after I did the DMT song. Somebody told me that ASAP Rock did a did a version of that with LSD. Um, yeah, he's amazing. I mean, there's more than that. There's like more, most deaf. There's a lot of of really, 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 really dope lyricists. Uh, Lupe Fiasco being another person you could arguably say you could arguably say like a Lupe Fiasco, a ASAP Rock, a Cannabis, a K Reno or I would say more achieved lyricists. But I would say as far as like technical skill, I would, I would definitely say that I've taken it, I've taken it the furthest and I have the ability to keep taking it further. Eminem, Eminem is also another one, but Eminem to me is a greater rhymer than he is overall lyricist. Like his examples of lyricism, I think are, are really dope in Stan and Kim and these conceptual songs. But a lot of times when he rhymes, there's really no um, substantial thread in what he's saying. He just finds the best rhyme combination. Yeah. Also, you got people like Royce the Five Nine, King Los, Daylight, uh, Loaded Lux, uh, Mickey Fax. There's a lot of superheroes out there. But as far as rhymes that correlate with the dynamics of metaphysics and Earth, that are like lines that you'll hear and it'll shake up your soul and 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 syllabics that are so precise that it's continuous no there there really isn't i mean technically no looking from the outside and i would say that if i'm not the best or most excellent lyricist ever um i will be i will be awesome you know as far as the whole like uh metaphysical kind of um spiritual references that you work into a lot of your rhymes um i was i've been reminded a little bit of kill a priest have you listened to him much oh yes that's another one that's another one he's another one yes yes he just came out with the rocket to nebula joint yeah which was amazing i think it'd be really cool to hear the two of you collaborate that's definitely gonna happen that's definitely gonna happen so awesome um Speaking of other MCs, I'm really interested in this song that came out in 2016, Tupac Murder Confession. Next day shopping mall, parking lot, got in car, hoping we could plot it all. But it all was off. And after a long awkward pause, he said pop. I said who? He said pop. I said how? He said shot. I said when? He said soon. I said cool. Um, if you could talk about what your intentions were behind that and, and the concept of it for people that don't know about it. Well, the concept was actually seeded a long time ago. I'd probably say 2013, 2014. Um, 
I was sitting on my porch and I was going through concepts. And I remember, you know, just all the greatest lyricists of all time, just like all the greatest prophets of all time, all have to tout some kind of miracles. And I've always been a conceptual kind of guy. You know, even in my earlier projects, I always did something that was like, all right, this is a next level skill. This is a concept that hasn't been achieved before. So originally, I remember 50 Cent did, uh, you know, sex with a industry chick or whatever it was where he's just going down a list of all the industry chicks he's had sex with. And I remember Papoose used to do a lot of, uh, he's another one that's a really great lyricist. Papoose used to do a lot of concepts. So my original concept was to, I don't know if I've ever said this before, so this is like a secret, but the original concept was to be a kind of like a Grim Reaper, hip hop death entity. And I was going to go chronologically down the list and explain how I killed every rapper ever. I was going to go Easy e Biggie, you know, Tupac, Big Pun. I was going to throw a Leah in there, Left Eye, um, you know, Jam Master J, Blase, Blah. But I realized how sensitive, as I was writing it, I realized how sensitive a lot of it was. And um, so instead of that, I chose to do Tupac initially because it is the most spoken about. It is the most, I would say, desensitizable topic out of all of them because people are kind of used to it. Um, and it's already been depicted. There's already been like, you know, so I already had a built-in justification. It's like for me to assume the role of the villain is no different than, you know, the guy who assumed the role of the villain in the Biggie movie. So I already knew that, all right, artistically, I have permission to do this within myself. I can write this without guilt. So I chose Tupac specifically because I had the most information it seemed to be like, if I can watch and read everything about it, I can come up with my own sort of hyperbolic storyline and fit myself in it as the killer rather than me just making a reference song that talks about the death. A lot of lyricists will read something or study an event or study a historical event and just rap that. And to me, that's not creative. So... I thought it would be creative if I somehow worked myself into a storyline that was already there and create my own kind of dialogue on how this would have happened if the real killer came forth and everybody that you thought was the killers weren't the killer. But I don't like just doing story songs because they, they don't, people generally, they'll, 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 I guess, neglect syllabic rhyme schemes, they'll neglect punchlines, They'll neglect entendre. They'll neglect vocal technique. So I wanted to make sure that if I'm going to do a storyline song, it still has bars in it. It still has quotables in it. So that's how that happened. Did you run into any uh, pushback or controversy from it? Yeah, a lot of the blogs and a lot of the industry people that I had connections with at that time wouldn't respond to me after I did it. Uh. To this day. Damn. And then recently a rapper named Glasses Malone did a song where he's killing Tupac. And I realized later that Reggie White Jr., which is either the guy from the story or the son of the guy, I don't know who was commenting uh, on my page, but they left a comment on the page. And that's the literally the police officer that was involved in the killing. 
at the end of the day, I don't know exactly what happened that day. But Glasses Malone, he's even done interviews about it to where he's saying, this is what really happened. I kind of want to clear it up. So maybe they saw my video and was like, no, we're going to redo the song as we want the world to know how it was. Hmm. But, I, you know, I don't really know. You know, I'm not here to beef with rappers and nothing like that. So peace to everybody. It's, you know, whatever. I'm not here to say who's right or wrong, but it, it, it did happen like that. I came out with mine a couple of years later. Glass Malone came out with his same concept, different storyline with the person who's involved with it, either the person or the son of the person. I'm not sure, but it is kind of weird. Well, you mentioned possibly being blacklisted a bit by some journalists from that. And um, I was kind of surprised uh, with your new album coming out. It seemed like Mellow Music was doing a pretty good promotional push but I, I expected it to get more attention uh, from journalists and um, the the hip hop world in general. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's deeply upsetting. I mean, it's like, uh, uh, yeah, Mellow Music, who you know they have some you know pretty big artists on there. We even had a PR person who's worked with a lot of the big acts. Who's worked with you know Griselda Records. He's worked with a lot of the big artists. Who, you know, he gets them leads all the time. Couldn't do anything for me. It was like they said they would send my stuff out and it would just, you know, nobody would respond, basically. I think the only uh, big website that put it up was Hip Hop DX. Other than that, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, man. Like, uh, it, I, I lose sleep every night because I've been doing this since, I've been putting out albums since I was 21. This is 12 years. And I finally get a deal and it's like, it gets just as much views and listens as I normally do. It was like, it was almost like I basically didn't have a label. And, you know, I appreciate uh, Mellow Music for all they've done, but like, it, 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 it just makes me question myself sometimes. And, I, and my higher self never questions myself. But when I'm in my lower states, it's like, damn, this, did the label realize what I just, like, LSD, if I wasn't me and I was a 15-year-old kid discovering rap for the first time and I heard Nikola Tesla and Grand Number Theory, I would that would that would blow my mind. Like, where that where are we? What planet are like people are only seeing dollar signs, they're only seeing lit shit. And it just so happened that my album came out during Corona when a lot of the uh I guess the publications lost money, they were firing editors, there's no in-person interviews anymore. But I noticed that. For whatever reason, it could be some level of self-destruction in there or in shyness because I'm also not somebody who, you know, is on live every night. I'm not I'm not doing what other artists do, too, as far as just, I guess, the cocky, braggadocious way of putting themselves out there. You know, I'm the I'm the best yo, Ain't nobody like me. You know, those kind of people, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. But the longer you go through struggle, the more calloused you'll be, the harder you'll be, the better and sharper my sword. I got my sword sharpened down to a mono, a mono atom. The tip of my blade is smaller than an atom at this point. I could, I could slice molecules. So yeah, the longer this shit takes, the hotter my fire is going to get. And it's going to get to a point where it's, it's just going to be bloody for every lyricist ever, because I'm not going to stop. Awesome. Yeah, you know, I, I actually asked a uh, a fellow hip hop podcaster what he thought 
about the new album and he's a fan of, you know, more lyrical MCs like MF Doom and Billy Woods, etc. So I thought he'd be into it, but I'll read you his response. And it, I think it kind of explains something to a degree. He said, it was just kind of intense. Like it was a lot, a lot of sounds, a lot of words, a lot of messages. Like I was pretty sure I wasn't really getting it. I kind of just wanted to put on something a little simpler, something I understood. I consider myself to be a well-informed listener. I get references. I know samples a lot of the times. This was just a lot of new information at once. I also wasn't sure if it was sincerely religious and if so, in what way, or if it was more spiritual. I was just like, what the hell is going on at times? But um, yeah, I I feel like it's kind of disappointing because I think that that reflects how a lot of listeners regard music. Mm-hmm. It's like you're too complex for a lot of people. Yeah, I've heard that and I get it. Like syllabic rhyme schemes blend the sounds. So in a song like Yahweh Shai, it's rhyming, the entanglement, the braiding of the rhyming sounds, the vowel sounds are so tight, tightly woven that you might just be hearing Yahweh Shai, Yahweh Shai, Shai, Yahweh Shai, Yahweh Shai, Yahweh Bawa Shai. I guess it takes a skilled ear, a highly skilled ear to listen to my music because there are these threads going on, you know, but uh, that's all I can say. I don't, I don't know, man. It kind of like, I'm the kind of man where if I don't understand something, I immediately try to understand it because I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to allow this man I'm listening to, to possess a facet of knowledge or linguistic ability that I don't have. I'm not going to just bow out. I'm going to say, wow, this is a lot of information, but maybe I should unpack unpack this. If somebody's saying, yo, you should listen to this. Maybe, maybe I should. However, if he doesn't like the music, if he doesn't, if it doesn't vibe with him, if it, if it doesn't, if it's not something that he likes sonically, then I can't blame him. You know, maybe my vocal tone, maybe my choice of beats aren't what he likes which kind of can take away from the gravity of my lyricism, or maybe he doesn't agree with my lyricism. So I can't really argue those things either. Yeah. I would think that people should be able to just appreciate it from a a sonic level. If they can't understand it, you know, with a lot of popular rap music, they, they might as well just be speaking gibberish with the, the simplicity of what they're talking about. It's they're saying nothing, but I guess it might just come down to people being immediately confused and not wanting to do the work that it would take to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, and you explained something. There's a dichotomy and dualistic polarity because mumble rap is just as indistinguishable as extremely complex lyrical rap. So really, what's the difference? It's kind of like the hottest hot is indistinguishable from the coldest cold both extremes kind of equal the same point. And um, yeah, like what you said, they should be able to appreciate the sonic sound, except those mumble rappers are using beats that uh, generally always have a very overbearing 808 sound and some kind of repetitious melody, similar to how a baby, you put a baby on your chest and sing them nursery rhymes. When you put them, when they hear that, they're hearing the bass of your voice from the muffled sound of your diaphragm, and they're getting the repetitious simplicity of the lullaby that they can passively listen to without engaging too much emotional or intellectual uh, response. 
Uh, that's yeah, that's very interesting because um, a friend of mine who will be probably making an appearance on the podcast, he uh, prefers to remain anonymous. We'll, we'll call him the rap curmudgeon. He hates almost all new rap music, but he was talking about how the sonic quality of a lot of the, uh, you know, the kind of pop pop trap that you'll hear on the radio. He says there's something sinister about the quality of the sonics of it. And he couldn't put his finger on it exactly. But um, that is interesting that it may have like a, a calming, almost like an opiate effect on people, like when you're in the stomach. That's exactly what it is. You see, uh, when he's talking about the sinister, almost intentional program, it comes from the base chakra. So the base or the sacral or the, the malkuth, the bottom, is all about primal sensory. It's all about sexuality, survival, fighting, hunters, blood, the, the real physical, secular, and uh, hedonistic aspect of life. So that is the simplest point to perform from. Everybody responds to hunger. Everybody responds to drugs. Everybody responds to sex. I mean, and not everybody, that means everything. That's animalistic. You know, um, that, that bass, that drum. I mean, when you go into tribal fire circles, they don't have synthesizers and uh, saxophones. The most basic instrument is banging your hands against something, whether it be a rock or a board or you know, a deer skin covered drum. Um, so there is an aspect of ignorance, but there is also an aspect of primitive nature. And, and sometimes with, with people, uh, music resonates with a simpler aspect of them. Like you said, as a baby, like most of this shit, we got programmed when we were kids watching Disney movies and shit. So like our relationship with music starts off as cartoonish. My music is making you you're on a tightrope with a unicycle balancing, you know, pies while juggling bowling balls because your your body wants to move. You want to be able to be emotionally attached to the music, but it's engaging your brain. You got to think hard. You got to rewind. That disturbs the groove. So I understand that. Yeah. We'll wrap things up in a minute, but uh, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. One, what are your long-term goals as an artist? So... Very good question, and uh, surprisingly, a very difficult question. Um, often, that's the problem, is that when it comes to projecting goals, you have to have some sort of confidence and trust in yourself, and you have to know yourself, and your insecurities are, are definitely on display. But I want to be not only one of the best and most excellent, but I want to be considered one of the greatest rappers, lyricists, and songwriters of all time. Um, I want to develop my voice and write and sing some of the greatest songs and harmonies and melodies ever sung. And I also would like to get into uh, making movies, comedy, random, obscure visuals. Um, and I want to be known as a, as a, I guess a progressive thinker that went beyond just the musical aspect of, of rapping and found a algorithm within rap that leads to genius level creative thinking to help children in hopes that my rhymes alone can, just by listening to them and understanding them and comprehending them, it creates a new wrinkle in, their, in your head intellectually 
to spark new genius. Awesome. So what are you working on currently and what can we expect in the near future as far as releases? Oh, it's a lot, man. Um, I generally go through a you know small state of depression after I come out with an album, especially one like this, because it's, it feels like I just climbed Mount Everest just to realize that there's another mountain on top of it that's twice as big. Mm-hmm. So, however, I prepared, I planted many seeds. So I have a vast amount of work coming out over the next two years. The most ever, you're going to see the most sonic consistency from me ever. I have an album with Loaded Lux, the battle rapper, and Black Magic. Uh, coming out in October. I have a visionary album coming out with Domingo Padilla. That's the producer that actually made the collaboration with me and Cannabis happen. He also produced Dream Shatterer by Big Pun. I have an album coming out with Master Sin from Philly. I have an album coming out with Soul Messiah, uh, who works, uh, who is actually the producer and manager of Saw Rock. I have Cambala, the second volume coming out. Also I have an album called Cambadu coming out. Um, I'm re-releasing the Crack Baby uh, Smoking Mirror Mirror series with uh, some new songs. And that's not even the end of it, man. I I mean, I have about 12 albums to put out in the next two years. And and the hardest part is figuring out how I'm going to do it. But in the near future, later this month, I have something that you're going to love. You're going to lose your mind when you hear it. Um, Maybe I can get uh, Phoenix to send you over an early copy. But on 824, I'm dropping a song that is basically if you took Tupac Murder Confessions, Michael Jackson, and Grand Number Theorem and smashed them together, this is song that is 10 minutes and 24 seconds long. You're going to have nightmares after you hear it. If you'd like to hear more of my interview with Kambada, including an expansion of his spiritual beliefs, how psychedelic drugs have influenced those beliefs, MCs that have influenced him, and how he incorporates comedy into his otherwise serious works, you can go to patreon.com slash weirdrap. I know it may be a bit presumptuous of me to announce a Patreon account on the second episode of the podcast, but oh well. And now, here's an exclusive peek at a new, unreleased Cambada song. It's called Magic Hour, in parentheses, Acid Shower. Pillar, I'm helicoptic. Living proof the demiurge was never Gnostic. Clever shaman sipping soup with a metal chopstick. Uh, I blind the sun with reflective optics. Extra telescopic, sped up metabolics. I stole my map back from Magellan's cottage. I just found Narnia in my bedroom closet. Instead of getting dressed, I was extra dimension hopping. Yeah. Lifetime cerebellum hostage. Soul banging on the door, now my head is throbbing. Got a hand job from Lorena Bobby. Legs robotic, I look like the next Colossus. Uh, I could fabricate the best synopsis. So you could get the plot twist without the extra nonsense. I wish my telekinesis could work on heavy objects. I never learn, I know, and then pretend it's logic. The magic hour, acid showers. The magic hour, acid showers. The magic hour, acid showers. When I get it, ain't no giving back the power. Yeah. Dad for hours, hashing sours. Wish it was Trump's building when they crashed them towers. Shit. Magic hour, acid showers. When I get it, ain't no giving back the power. 
Cambada's got a lot of things coming out in the near future, so stay tuned to cambadamusic.com and his social media, for which you will find links in the show notes. Sometimes people got to come out and speak up and let people understand that, you know, you got, you got to read the label. You got to read the label. If you don't read Paul, the label, you might get poisoned. Tommy ain't my motherfucking boy. When your fake moves on a nigga you employ. Recently, Jizza, aka the genius, made a post suggesting that he believed the earth to be flat. As many of you know, Jizza is well known for the song Labels from his 1995 album Liquid Swords. The song weaves in the names of various record labels throughout the lyrics and warns of the potential pitfalls in getting involved with the corporate music world. But in 1995, there was no chance of the song being heard widely across the quote-unquote globe without the aid of a record label. So while labels can and do sometimes screw artists over, they can also enable artists to reach audiences. I'm sure that this reality was not lost on Jizza, as he was then entering into his third record deal. Lately, I've been thinking about labels in general and how they can be helpful or harmful depending on the circumstances. Some labels or symbols are helpful for our survival, like poisonous and non-toxic, but those broad labels alone are sometimes inefficient. For example, almost anything edible becomes toxic when we eat too much of it, and many poisonous things are edible in small amounts. So we need to label the various poisonous and edible items. If we want to be extra healthy, we need to be very specific in labeling not only different kinds of foods, but the elements they contain, like vitamins, sugars, calories, etc. And to understand how those elements interact with each other in our bodies, even more labels are needed. Labels are also necessary for us to communicate with each other beyond grunts, and labels are essential for teaching or learning almost anything beyond very basic skills. So, I think labels are good in some instances. Jizz's post shows a video panning about 180 degrees across the apparently non-curved horizon of the ocean, along with the question, round or flat? The public responded with shock and dismay, labeling Jizza as a flat earther. But is that fair? Maybe Jizza was asking the question honestly, not rhetorically as many assumed. Maybe he's not a believer in the flat earth theory and was just trying to get a rise out of people. Maybe when he made the post, he was a flat earther, but since then, he changed his mind. In any of those instances, it would be incorrect to label Jizza a flat earther. Labeling has arguably been essential to our evolution as a species. It comes naturally to us. But I think that labeling people's characteristics is where we can sometimes run into trouble. Without labels of ethnicity, for example, it would be hard, if not impossible, to teach racism or other forms of xenophobia. Without labels like hipster, hippie, or redneck, we might be more prone to forming our opinions of each other on an individual basis rather than putting them into a prejudged category. We tend to label not only others, but we label ourselves, and sometimes we allow others to label us. Labels like man, woman, anarchist, conservative, homosexual, heterosexual, Christian, heathen, father, mother, artist, business executive, etc. But no one is only a business executive. That's a limiting definition. And business executive can mean a wide variety of things. So it's not a meaningful description. 
Communism means different things to different people, with even self-proclaimed communists having differing definitions of the word. So again, the label is not very meaningful. Labeling yourself as a member of almost any group guarantees that you'll be misunderstood by some and despised by others. Worst of all, resigning yourself to a certain set of beliefs may make you less prone to reevaluating and adapting your beliefs. In what's known as call-out culture, we label celebrities things like sexist, homophobic, or racist. I think this can be helpful for the public to familiarize themselves with what sorts of behaviors may be harmful. In this way, we can learn from the mistakes of others. When it comes to the accused individuals, though, being labeled may not help them to reflect and grow. It might only make them defensive and double down on their misguided ways. We tend to think of ourselves as complex, dynamic individuals. We recoil from being defined. So while it may be for the public good to call out a pop star or politician with a label, when it comes to a personal relation, like a friend or family member who we see as acting racist, we might be more effective in changing their views by avoiding labeling. Instead of saying, that's racist, or worse, you're racist, we could take the time and energy to lovingly explain how their behavior may have harmful consequences. Most of us have considered the flat earth theory to varying degrees and have decided to label flat earthers as morons. But is the Jizza necessarily stupid if he subscribes to the flat earth theory? Simulation theory, the idea that we may all be living in an elaborate virtual reality system of some sort, is not met with the same sort of criticism. Some simulation theory proponents are widely regarded as geniuses, and many of our greatest thinkers consider the theory at least a possibility. But if we are in a simulation, then our planet could just as likely be flat, donut-shaped, or completely non-existent. Some people believe in the flat earth theory within the context of simulation theory. Some flat earthers believe the ocean is contained by ice, others believe it's contained by a force field of some sort. The Vedic texts of Hinduism describe the earth as a stack of flat disks. There are many types of flat earthers, so maybe that label, like jock or nerd, is not very descriptive or meaningful after all. The Antifa label was created as an attempt to combat fascism. But since it has now been used and interpreted in many different ways, Antifa means different things to different people. To some, Antifa is a specific organization like Black Lives Matter, the Republican National Committee, or ISIS. Some regard Antifa as violent, anarchist, communist, anti-white, anti-police, or anti-conservative. In this way, the label has been demonized and weaponized by certain people, so that without thinking critically, many people consider anyone who espouses it to be their enemy, and will therefore disregard anything an Antifa person says or does. With this in mind, we might ask whether or not that label is helpful or more of a hindrance to the movement it represents. But we should also ask, without the label, would that movement have been effective as it has been? The label has accompanied what appears to be a spreading of awareness and a shift in social consciousness. Would our social media algorithms be as efficient in spreading this consciousness without the hashtagged keyword informing their algorithm? The same question could be asked about Occupy Wall Street, the Yellow Vest Movement, 
and Black Lives Matter. There are large demonstrations and movements throughout history which apparently lacked an all-encompassing label, like, for example, what has since been labeled the Arab Spring or the Vietnam War protests. But even these sometimes employed slogans and symbols. Now back to Jizz's post. Someone commented on it, There is a reason why ships in pursuit of another ship would sail 3.1 miles away, to avoid being seen. They'd sail just over the curve of the horizon where only the crow's nest would poke over. This is only possible if the Earth is a sphere. Jizz's reply to this was, Exactly. What? Did he change his mind? Is he just trying to trick us into thinking he's not a flat earther after seeing his potential loss of fans? Was he messing with our heads all along, just trying to get attention? Or was Jizza trying to teach us a lesson? Tell me what you think at weirdrap3000 at gmail.com. Maybe I'll read your response in a future episode. And now... My conversation with author and music reviewer, Nate, Nate Patron. I really enjoyed your book, Bring That Beat Back, How Sampling Built Hip Hop. I thought that I had a uh, pretty solid knowledge of hip hop history, but I ended up learning a ton of stuff that I had no idea about. So it's really in depth and well-researched. I, uh, I like that besides the sampling aspect, it also gets pretty deep into the lives of the artists and the cultures surrounding them pretty well-rounded look at the whole history of hip-hop and obviously the the entirety of hip-hop's influences can't fit into a book so you had to you had to choose a limited number of artists to focus on so i wonder what what was your process in deciding who to cover well initially the book was just going to be a list of uh notable samples like in different sort of subgenres and scenes of hip hop and kind of tracing the way that uh, certain trends sort of uh, moved and redefined how sampling was used. Um, but then I, uh, like I spoke with my agent and he suggested uh, there's this book, I believe it's called the, uh, the mansion on the Hill, which is about uh, rock in the seventies and frames that kind of like large subject around a, handful of certain specific artists like i believe like neil young might have been one of them and and a few others and so the idea to sort of get a few recognizable names and faces and put them to uh, the story uh, was something that i took to uh pretty readily i think in a lot of ways i was able to uh cover a very large span uh, of uh, production and uh, history just by degrees of association. Like I wanted to represent uh, the old school, the golden era, the West Coast slash super producer era, and then the uh, sort of contemporary indie underground. Yeah. Uh, one of the groups that's been on my mind today, just because I, I covered them in a post, is Digital Underground. And you, you touched oh, on yeah. them briefly, but I feel like they haven't gotten really as much attention or respect as, as they might have. And maybe that's partially due to the, the novelty comedy kind of aspect. But I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about their work and their influence on hip hop. Man, I, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like, yeah, 
I mean, I was, I was like, I must've been like 12 or 13 when the Humpty dance came out. And so that you want to talk about, you know, fortuitous timing there. That's like yeah. the, the 13 year old kids. I, I deal of the perfect hip hop song. <laughs> it jokes about 69 and getting busy in a Burger King bathroom. And then like, when you get older, it's like, Oh, they're doing this whole parliament funkadelic sort of homage with their own take on it. We are the sons You know, they have that similar sense of being silly but deep. You have a, like, you know, real musicality to them that's not just, uh, you know, that's not just, oh, well, we'll sound like, you know, we'll sound like George Clinton. It's it's more like picking out the specifics of which parts of, uh, which parts of the whole to really integrate into their style. And then... Uh, building um, an homage around that sort of, I like to think they're like, this might be kind of an off kilter comparison, but they seem like to me, like the hip hop answer to Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band. Hmm, not familiar. Oh, back in the seventies, uh, mid seventies. Um, it was August Darnell, who is also part of the uh, kid Creole and the coconuts, but they have a bunch of, uh, songs that have actually been been sampled uh fairly prominently like um MIA interpolated sun showers Shershela Ghosts by Ghostface is based on Shershela Femme the lives on the road. That's the actual like chorus from that song. But um, yeah, Dr. Buzzards were uh, a funny example because they're like a 70s like disco soul band that drew fairly heavily on like big band style music and used it to kind of like be sort of like tongue in cheek commenting on, you know, contemporary as of the 70s culture while, yeah, Digital Underground, uh, yeah, they did kind of a similar thing and like reaching back to the... Uh, you know, somewhat comparatively more recent, but P-Funk uh, doing the same for, uh, you know, addressing things like, you know, like safe sex or yeah, like just, you know, you know, being whatever you want, you know, like do what you like. <laughs> so I think there's a, yeah, uh, it's, I mean, I gotta actually do get a bit deeper in them. I remember like, you know, every time I listen to them, uh, I feel like there's there's something a little more to glean from from their sound. I think that the rep you mentioned, like. Yeah, it's just the you know the the Humpty Dance. It's silly, and I mean, that seems like a very strange curse for rappers because you also have like well Sir Mix a Lot, who people like to goof on for Baby Got Back, but the dude can spit. He is a good MC, like like really straight up. Like if you like if you like bass style hip hop, you know along those lines is like he's pretty hard to fuck with. Well, that was actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is Sir Mix-a-Lot because he's another person that I think doesn't get much credit 
And again, you know, he, he made himself into a cartoon in a way, but, um, his production alone, I think on the first two albums and most of the third one is pretty amazing in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Here's the white chunk, your neck to get cut, but cross the white line and I'll roll you up. And uh, even influential, I'd say possibly, you know, I don't, I don't think people really cite him as an influence, but uh, yeah, it's something I want to talk to you about in general is like, you know, he was from Seattle and then the Bay Area as well had too short. And I think mm-hmm. you could kind of compare their production styles um, in a more, I'd say, a drum machine oriented approach as opposed to sample based. Um, yeah. Which is why I didn't really touch on them that much. Although yeah. like, if you want to like, man, like it'd be a fun thing to actually, uh, I don't know if I'd do it or someone else could, but uh, like a sort of like companion book about the history of the 808 in hip hop. Although I know there was that documentary that came out a while ago, but yeah. Oh man. You know, go from like, you know, too short and mantronics to, you know, to the, you know, like Southern rap boom and all that. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, you did talk about Arabian Prince who was pretty, yes. um, based on, on the electronics and the, the drum machines and, um, yeah, it just kind of, it struck me that there's almost like this dichotomy between the West and East coast in general, not you know, there's plenty of uh, examples that don't follow this trend, but with Arabian Prince being mostly electronics based and, you know, the, the Pete Rocks and stuff of New York being more sample based. And then the whole West Coast, East Coast beef thing started after Dr. Dre kind of popularized G-Funk and he also in his own way, got rid of sampling. So there was like this big West Coast not sampling influence and then Puff Daddy keeping the sampling strong on the East Coast. I just thought that was kind of interesting. I wonder if you'd thought about it in those terms. Yeah, I did. And I think it's funny that as much as he really did popularize the pushing of sample-based sounds to the background, most of Dre's most famous beats, you know, whether it's, you know, NWA or, you know, on the chronic or whether it's doing beats for, you know, Eminem or some other people, those are all based around pre-existing hooks, whether they're directly sampled or just interplay. Yeah, it is, I guess, a sample based thing, even if you can't technically say he's sampling you. Yeah. I mean, so there's still like an acknowledgement of that, of that tradition. And Using Puffy as the example of the uh, of the uh, sample preservationist is pretty funny because, man, I remember and this is like I, I'm, my old head is showing here, but and I, like the late '90s, like everybody was just goofing on the fact that Puffy's samples were so obvious and crowd pleasing and probably cost a fortune. Right. It's like, oh yeah, you're you're doing the police and you're doing, you know, break my stride and uh, you know. Uh, it's like, come on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think in the end, the fact that a lot of the you know most positively remembered hip hop from like the late 90s, early aughts, 
came from, you know, uh, like Outcast and Organized Noise or the uh, kind of like the Virginia Brain Trust that uh, that brought us uh, that kind of like uh, it's like sort of like that post Jodeci movement that gave us uh, Timbaland and the Neptunes mm-hmm. is that's that's when composition in hip hop really started to take a forefront over sampling. I, I think that like, like as far as outcast goes, I know like, well, Ms. Jackson, you know, famously interpolates uh, brothers Johnson Earl, well, Shuggy Otis's strawberry letter 23 and uh, like wheels of steel samples like this organ riff from this uh, instrumental by the Danish prog rock group focus. But that's, uh, that's just about the gist of like off the top of my head, what I can even remember them sampling you know most of it i was like yeah they, they brought back the studio band from the from the 70s yeah. and uh so i think but since you know outcasts were also like fucking amazing you know both lyrically and production wise i think people didn't really object so much and uh i think that's when the uh sample culture kind of like started teetering a bit and of course, there's always the uh, financial logistics of trying to get things cleared and how even if you're kind of like a deep crate digger, you know, Mad Lib type who really likes going for the uh, kind of off the beaten path stuff, sometimes you'll still get, you know, held up. Like uh, one of my favorite tracks uh, was uh, taken off of the Further Adventures of Lord Quaz because it was a Roy Ayer sample that uh, hadn't been properly cleared. Uh, yeah, it later arrived on, uh, on that, uh, rarities comp you put out a few years back, but, uh, yeah, it's, there's so many, but there's so many different paths available for, you know, producers right now that, I mean, honestly, sampling was the thing for quite a while because it was, uh, you know, the most accessible and the easiest to do. You, You had a home studio, you could, put together for you know not that much money and you know you could buy like five ten fifteen dollar lps or you know ones that cost you a lot less than that at the goodwill and just make your own music out of that and nowadays since everything is so instantly available you know whether it's on youtube or you know just getting it from file sharing or just you know, finding some, you know, weird clip in a TikTok, there's so many options available to potential beat makers that there's this sense that there aren't as many rules. Yeah, I think it's interesting that right now where it seems like we're hearing both extremes as far as just mm-hmm. the dustiest sample based stuff and the most synthetic 808 based music that it seems like yeah you know, it's more extreme on both sides yeah although i love on uh oh man i gotta i gotta pull up my music library so i can refresh my memory vis-a-vis song titles but the one track on the new run the jewels that uh samples the same uh foster silver's track uh misdemeanor that uh dre did for uh it's funky enough for doc run the jewels flip that for uh oh yeah uh, i remember the site yeah, and nah, I'm like, nah, oh, nah, nah. Is that yeah, one? yeah, 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 and 
so it's yeah i like i've gotten into like back and forths i wouldn't say arguments with my friends but like oh i used to like lp a lot more when he did you know sample based stuff and now he's doing like you know like synthesizers but it's like he seems really good at balancing both of them out i mean like just because the samples he uses might not be instantly identifiable doesn't mean necessarily that he's you know still not building around them yeah i did want to talk to you about lp um who you mentioned a little bit in the book to me you know in the late 90s early 2000s i felt like he was pretty influential and i think influential on a lot of the underground at the time maybe i don't know how far his influence reached into the larger sphere of hip-hop but um it felt like he was taking this rough lineage from you know like bomb squad to dj mugs to Mm. to rizza and incorporating a lot of that kind of lo-fi noisy stuff with a futuristic industrial touch and i just uh wondered if you had any thoughts on his contribution to well i mean i guess you just talked about it a bit his uh his approach yeah well i mean he's one of my all-time favorite producers i didn't talk him about him that much in the book which i kind of it's kind of like i'm half kicking myself for and half well you know they they gave me a word count and i gotta get under it yeah but um yeah like just thinking about well i think the most interesting i wouldn't say irony per se but the most interesting detail about especially his early productions is it sounded grimy, but using beats and samples that were supposed to sound super futuristic when they first came out, because like, you know, he'll sample, you know, like Vangelis or Giorgio Moroder from the, you know, early eighties, you know, stuff that sounded like completely state of the art back then and still has a certain aesthetic pull to it. I, I mean, it's like, I'm not going to, uh, call lpa accidental progenitor of synthwave but you know why not but um i think that's the kind of thing that happens when you have people who kind of inhabit a couple different worlds because i mean he was definitely a hardcore hip-hop head and he was also i think like familial uh connections had kind of one foot in the art world because i know like the the symbol that appears on all of his solo albums is based on an Alexander Calder uh, mobile. And like, I, I believe it was his mom who knew like Calder, who was like one of the great 20th century sort of abstract sculptors. Hmm. So he's, yeah, he, he does have that kind of sense that feels kind of like a bit idiosyncratic and unique to him. Sort of like how like the RZA wouldn't be the RZA per se, if he wasn't, you know, obsessed with, you know, Hong Kong martial arts movies. So like, you'll have something where, you know, he'll like, you know, just do these, you know, straight up hip hop beats, but then he'll introduce like a Philip Glass sample, like he did on, you know, Cannibal Ox's Scream Phoenix. Scream Phoenix. And just pull it off in a way that works because, you know, it's not something that necessarily other producers thought to do, but he's still doing it in a way that clicks in a hip hop context. He, he seems like a guy who can just really 
improvise and like overcome some, you know, unforeseen limitations to really make something work. There's this, oh man, I forget what the series is called, but it's, it's like, there's a uh, online video where it was basically, he would go and like literally blindfold, pick out, you know, three albums from a record store and try to make something out of them. And he picked like three albums. There was like an easy listening. And then like, I forget what else, but it was like, like a classical album. And then like a disco 12 inch. And he's like, well, let's see what I can work with here. And he's able to actually put together something pretty choice. So uh, yeah, that's, that's the other thing that I think really, is needs to be stressed when you're talking about you know hip-hop production is it's like cooking almost it's like you, you if you can make something out of nothing you're you've you've got it pretty much set yeah i mean because even if you have like all you have is like a like a you know a little boss doctor sample and a you know fourth generation bootleg dub of you know michael viner's bongo rock uh, by the incredible bongo band you should be able to make something if you've got the experience and the time and the ability to kind of ignore your constraints yeah it's a it's a beautiful art so in the book you you dedicate a good amount of time to dilla and madlib which i found mm-hmm. very interesting more interesting for me than listening to their music because my tastes run pretty weird and their music hasn't really quite spoken to me, but mm. your descriptions of their music really kind of gave me extra appreciation for their stuff. Cool. And um, I mentioned that because I wonder if you can explain to me the attraction that everyone seems to have to Alchemist as a producer. Oh, I was going to bring him up too, because he's actually kind of like reminds me of a bridge between... Uh... LP and Madlib uh, stylistically and aesthetically, uh, especially since uh, like he had, you know, like this stretch of conceptual stuff similar to uh, Madlib's beat conductor or, uh, you know, Madlib's brother, uh, Ono, did uh, a few uh, albums where the thing was like, oh, I'll just take a bunch of albums from this one particular country or this one particular region of the world and do sort of like a conceptual album around that. And uh, Alchemist did a few of them that I really like. Uh, Russian Roulette, Israeli Salad. What's the third one? Was French. French Blend, yeah. He has this sort of like like similar to Madlib, a real curatorial sense. And then like LP, he puts it to a very distinct mood that he likes to occupy kind of like a neo-noir sort of sense. It's like, it's like listening to a, an alchemist beat is sometimes like stumbling onto a very out there, some sort of like seventies crime film from like Eastern Europe or Japan that you'd never heard of. And it's completely riveting. It's familiar, like the beats are familiar, but the language, so to speak, is, is, gives it a completely different dimension. So, and I think, yeah, that's the thing about Alk is he, he, yeah, does all these, you know, different stylistic experimentations. And there's something about his, 
including some of his more recent stuff, that seems a bit prog. And I don't mean that in the, the demeaning, you know, punk rock sense. I mean that in the uh, King Crimson rules sense, <laughs> hmm. in that uh, he, he really likes to dredge up these very melodically complex or unlikely sort of sounding elements to his beats, whether it's really odd sounding synthesizers or like these kind of heavy guitar riffs that aren't quite hard rock, but sort of lean that way. Yeah, everything feels kind of kind of scummy almost. Like <laughs> not in a total dirtbag sense, but kind of a uh you know, aging gangster driving a big car smoking chain smoking and you know, just glowering out the window while he's on his way to the bar, you know. That kind of that kind of vibe. Yeah. Well, that's that's enlightening for me. Thank you. Yeah, because I've mm-hmm. I've just for me, it's just kind of strikes me as like hip hop elevator music. But, you know, maybe hmm. I'll try listening again with uh, fresh ears. Well, there's a fine line, I think, between elevator music and cinema music. Mm, yeah. And I think when you get a good enough MC who can really who can really, uh, you know, tell stories and set the scene like. You know, like Alchemist did with uh, with uh, Prodigy for uh, Albert Einstein, that really transports people somewhere. Right. But again, it's like taste is taste. I mean, there are some things. I don't know if it's necessarily like regional or generational or what have you that can kind of ring differently to different people. So it's like I always think about the thought exercise of like, okay, well, uh, like I was twenty the first time I heard. Uh, bj shadows introducing what would somebody who's 20 now think of it right you know, that that kind of idea especially since it's it's kind of interesting that you know there's a dichotomy it's either you have an artist who worked with what was available and they sounded they sounded right there at right at home at the time but like the technology and the ideas and the aesthetics have advanced so much since then that it sounds outmoded to some people or then there's the other side where it's like something that somebody does is so prescient and so influential that so many other people do it. It almost kind of loses its, uh, its impact. If it's like the uh, seventh or eighth thing you listen to in that vein, instead of the first. Definitely. Yeah. It's all very subjective. Of course. But that's the thing about sampling and about hip hop production is sometimes you can tell when somebody's just doing something because it's popular or because it's what the streets want or what the club wants. And sometimes you can tell when it's a producer who is like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to make a sick beat out of this thing that people might think is ridiculous, but I genuinely love and if they fuck with it, great. If they don't, well, I'm going to keep making beats until, uh, you know, my weird tastes and the public's tastes somehow intersect. Just to think about, like, how Mad Villainy is one of the most critically revered albums of its decade and how many people love it. And the fact that, <laughs> like, just listen to Accordion. And you're like, how did this happen? Who, how do you come to this conclusion that this is a good beat? Slip like 40 and your first and last step to playing yourself like accordion. 
but it is a good beat, at least in my ears, because it's just so unexpected and off kilter. And it, you know, and it also comes from uh, a song by Daedalus, who is a uh, kind of a kind of a pivotal figure in the Los Angeles beat scene. So there's that. But it's, yeah, it's. I think sampling in, in itself, at its best, can be an expression of educating people through your taste and your interests and you know, showing them, well, this is, you know, even if it's just a few bars of a certain song, this is why I like what I like. And maybe, you know, this, this is a connection to, to what you're interested in because it's, I mean, that's what it happens when you build a genre of music that originated with the DJ. The DJ is the selector, you know, they're the taste maker. You know, they can make or break a record and they're they're in control, you know, in ways that higher ups in record companies and, you know, ANRs and bottom line obsessed executives will never get. Yeah, it's um, it is very interesting to think of from that aspect of like a, a chef making a meal with a different um, ingredients. And I guess what I've really been attracted to in, in hip hop is taking these ingredients that you wouldn't normally expect to go with each other and you know the prince paul like approach of of really uh creating something that doesn't necessarily fit a a vibe or a mood that you would associate with anything except for maybe an alien planet or something you know and that, and of course you know you can get much more refined and defined in in the type of mood or atmosphere that you're creating depending on what ingredients you use but uh, yeah i've always been someone that likes a a booyah base or a fusion meal or whatever yeah but um i've been thinking about this recent trend of um lo-fi production with very little drums or no drums at all Oh, or low in the mix. Yeah. Uh, often coupled with pretty offbeat rapping. And I just, you know, wondered what you thought about all that. Well, Ka released one of my favorite albums of the year. If, yeah. if you want a concise version of that, what yeah. I think of that. So too much to have blind faith. Shadows laced with sour grapes. The same divine place. Long lags of stagnation. Made the mind race. Being lost like this. Or how you in a confined space. But yeah, man, that's that's a pretty funny, uh, you know, like you think like, oh, there's no, you know, there's no more ways to be iconoclastic in hip hop. And then it's like, oh, here you go. Mm -hmm. You know, drum breaks without drums. (laughs) But to use my example of Ka is like as a producer where it feels like there is an implied beat or an implied snare, even when there isn't one, because you kind of like sink into the actual cadence of the loop and the the rhythm of his voice and you feel that there's like a bit more flexibility and and like freedom in there in in a that might not necessarily be as present as there might be with you know some big you know huge bomb squad you know percussive breaks i don't know who else has really been doing that heavily but i think like it really does take a distinct voice and a very distinct sense of melody to pull that off and as a producer mc car has both i think it's interesting because he seems like very like he has that kind of like quiet intensity almost that you'd hear from like jizza 
And production wise, he tends to lean a lot towards like psychedelia and, and, and prog and such. Uh, like he's, you know, unearthed some just completely confoundingly obscure stuff that I've like looked up on who sampled. And I'm like, I didn't even know they, you know, made prog in this country. <laughs> so, uh, or in this decade and he's, he, you know, he, he just sampled it. So, but I think, you know, it's to certain ends is like, can you make, yeah, can, like, can you make hip hop that's atmospheric and riveting without relying on the one big fundamental backbone of it, which is the drum break? I mean, can you be like, is there a Brian Eno of hip hop? You know, can you do like, like a, like a hip hop music for airports, like, you know, ambient hip hop? I'm sure that like there have been, you know, stabs at it. I just have to be one with my heart. I become the beat. I had to lead the drums, the blood surges, my brain starts to shut down, sudden urges are held back, I feel relaxed, happy to but nap. I think the fact that now you're really getting some just straight up masterworks out of it, you know, is is pretty uh, pretty inspiring. I also thought you were going to like talk about like the the lo-fi hip hop beats to study and chill to phenomenon. Oh no, I don't I don't really I haven't followed that phenomenon. I, I'm aware that it it is one, but you know, the glimpses I've caught of it haven't been compelling to me. I don't know what that's about. What do you, what do you have some thoughts on it? Uh, not too many. No. Like, I, I, I think that it's like interesting kind of like Dilla type beats sort of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And like, we might get a few, you know, really interesting producers out of it, but, uh, but like, unless your knowledge, let knowledge be heard. <laughs> kind of have a long road ahead as far as finding your own you know approach to it but uh yeah it, it's kind of a bummer to see like a style of music you enjoy you know or a subgenre sort of memified in that way where yeah it, it becomes kind of like like a punchline yeah i i'm still enjoying this um i i do see it as a, a trend in a bit of a wave with the the quiet or no drums um other artists that I feel like are, are delving into that more are like, um, Earl sweatshirt recently, um, artists like Mike Mavi. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of these artists, as opposed to Ka, who is definitely following the same BPM as the music he's rapping on, even though there's some play as far as the rhythm, um, being a bit off at times. Um, there, I'm hearing a trend towards completely offbeat, off kilter rapping, especially like in that new Earl Sweatshirt and this, the Arm and Hammer album mm. uh, that just came out. I don't know if you heard that. Oh, yeah. I love that record, too. Yeah. Our front, we play light brigade in the gaps. That dog won't hunt after the crack back. All black, everything shapes abstract after the block. Shards of light, knife shot. It's funny because... Uh, Man, you know, speaking of uh, LP and, you know, company flow, there's something about uh, like the kind of, you know, I'll, I'll stop and start when I want to kind of flow, you know, with Billy Woods. It kind of reminds me of uh, Big Just, especially yeah. some of the less heard solo stuff that he uh, that he put out post company flow. This is a living culture. 
Pop out the style vagina Hopping on the bandwagon at the ass into the mustard With never enough to critique the algorithmic numerical foundation That's deep three generations Yeah, I love that stuff I hear a kind of a line between EPMD Who was a bit lazy with their flow To Wu-Tang That really at first kind of threw me up With how offbeat they sounded to me and that, mm-hmm. that gradually grew on me too. And then, yeah, definitely LP and Big Just especially took that a, a few steps further, maybe. And then, yeah, like listen to Poor People's Day, for instance, that track right. where it's just like he's just like, like barraging you. It's like, you taking liberties. We hear the loose and the stranglehold and shut down production. We say the things no one else would say. We take responsibility to change the course, no matter the consequences. Cause once the word is out, the population will know the distorted views. But he was in his own zone. Like I don't I don't feel yeah. like there was a whole lot of people that followed in his footsteps. Until now, maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. who knows if there's an actual influence there, but yeah, now I'm hearing things like the new Mike album where it seems like mm-hmm. the beat and the vocals could be at two different tempos. Act accordingly to pride, forgive him Lord, take choices in my eyes, it's been ignored, and ain't no moral when I hide, ain't no fishing for, stripping sorrow when I write, it's a different war. And I do think maybe we're headed towards a trend of actual ambient noise rap you know with my pen to the paper sensational i'm a rap star that don't front when it comes to the front end my beats they pump it i i I go for that yeah and i mean it does seem like a culmination in a couple of ways of like what the rizzo was doing because like he wasn't just grimy and lo-fi he was like really into felonious monk and his sort of counterintuitive sense of rhythm and just like how he you know sometimes just do little interjections and slap the keyboard and just like you know pause take a drag from a cigarette i think that's that's like how rizza put it it's like man you can do anything and so i think that like yeah the uh the idea of mc's actually taking that kind of like felonious monk rhythm to rapping is is pretty remarkable because you have that sense of uh you know it's not just like laziness it's like having to have it's like knowing the sense of what the timing is yeah you have to have a sense of time before you can flout it you know yeah you gotta know the rules to break them or something but yep. um yeah i was also thinking about that new beans album have you heard that they heard adp I have not heard of it yet. I got to get caught up on uh, like, man, uh, anti-pop consortium. They were, they were like, kind of like, yeah, they were like, they were the wave for a while. And then, uh, and that kind of like died down. I think there's a, there's something to be written about how like the indie press and all weeklies and such were like all in on uh, underground hip hop for a while. And then uh, started like really going all in on, you know, Coke rap and such. Yeah, I don't want to be the the you know grumpy old forty something is like you know hip hop peaked in nineteen ninety three and everything after that was just diminishing returns. But there is it's we're dealing with a whole armada of like just you know 
just completely distinctive underground and independence and the, the kind of hip hop where it's like, okay, well, the ceiling for my fame is probably going to be, uh, you know, people who watch Adult Swim consider me a household name. That's that's kind of like the the level of fame we're talking about. But uh, scenes will, can and will continue to mutate uh, on their own terms, whether or not there's a record industry or a music journalism industry, you know, which is not in great shape either. And uh, and I kind of got away from the question, I think, but, uh, no, I think it's an, it's an interesting place to go. And it's, you know, something that I'm trying to do as just one guy without a very big audience or anything at this point. But, um, you know, the, the mission for weird rap is to document not only that, that era, you know, that you spoke of with anti-pop consortium and the surrounding NYC art rap scene, yeah, you could like call Canox, it. Yeah, ASAP Rock, Mike Ladd. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff, you know, the stuff that, that led up to it, the stuff afterwards, and, and the current stuff, which is, it's really hard to keep track of all the amazing new stuff that's coming out now, especially as I've tried to become more in tune with it and keep track of it um, mm-hmm. to document it. It's It's overwhelming. But it's uh, it's pretty great. I think the wealth of music that's out there, and and like you say though, that the the media has not been covering it in a really long time, or even back back then, back in the late '90s, early 2000s. I don't think there was a there. Yeah, there were some magazines and stuff that covered it a bit, but um, yeah, I see kind of a lane open as far as like a a media presence that's covering that stuff so yeah because i think the big obstacle nowadays for a lot of people isn't like oh something's too difficult or it's too weird it's just that they aren't you know told that it exists that was nate patron p-a-t-r-i-n and again i very much enjoyed his book bring that beat back how sampling built hip-hop Speaking of sampling, I've recently been thinking about the ethics of sampling, particularly when it comes to someone like myself, a white guy, sampling the music of ethnic minorities without their permission. So in a segment that I did not include in the last episode's interview with Rob Sonic, I'll get his perspective on it. And after that, we'll get another perspective from H Prism, aka High Priest of Anti-Pop Consortium. I don't, I don't sample. I play everything, and then I loop it. I made that a conscious effort a long time ago. Well, the first time I ever made a foray into professional music, I found that that was a very difficult road to, to, to hoe. And uh, you definitely don't want to get into issues of, you know, that's industry rule 4080, you know what I'm saying? So uh, uh, I made it a conscious effort of myself when I was going to start uh, putting out music through other people that, uh, you know, now some of the Sonic Sum stuff, I'm sure there were samples in there, but that was produced by TME. And, and I understand that, that 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 is a very real, that's a woke approach to it. I'm not sure too many people have that approach to it, what you just said, because that would create some sort of more dilemma, I would imagine, but I would always tend to go through the proper channels if I was going to sample somebody's music. I would at least make an attempt. Right. Just because... Uh, you know, I, I understand as a working artist that uh, I don't know if I was to put out my music and somebody 50 years later 
decided that uh, they were going to use it, and that song became huge because of something I did, and uh, I died broke. You know, I mean that's just human hum, humanity. For the sake of humanity, I would try to go through the proper channels of that. But a lot of times, you hit a barrier with the fact that some of these artists don't even own their stuff. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, if I was to sample, I would certainly try and and get whoever I'm sampling some money. Yeah, you can really get. It deep into the weeds, I guess, with that discussion as far as like how long of a sample and how much you manipulate, does that matter? And Oh, if I mean, sampling laws definitely don't have anything to do with necessarily the moral dilemma that you might face. Oh, the, I know. I, yeah, I know that. I, I'm just talking about the moral aspect. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that rap music did a lot when it was first being allowed. And, you know, there's multiple different albums where they say that that sort of stops that but could you imagine the bomb squad or rick rubin or def jam guys not being able to sample or eric being rakim or you know like these these guys actively made points of sort of reviving many artists who weren't being listened to weren't being considered greats of their of music just because of the cloudy history that just america sort of puts on everything you have to approach it with a different attitude just to get the real story anyways in this country you know what i'm saying totally if you don't have sampling you don't have rap where it is and you don't have a lot of the artists like knowing who James, even if somebody as massive as James Brown. Yeah. There's no Prince Paul. There's no public enemy, but right. it, it does have a different um, flavor, I guess, at least in this era of a minority or, you know, an oppressed minority taking what's available as opposed to someone in a more privileged position. And Right. And that goes, that would open a whole door into like digging culture and, and the ability for somebody to say, all right, I'm going to go and spend $4,000 at this record store to somebody who can't afford that much. And those people are obviously going to be privy to more, uh, more samples in that respect in itself. Practices being that I'm not wealthy, but I am white and male and privileged in those respects. And, you know, where I have no moral qualms with sampling commercial pop music, for example, I, I have been kind of questioning myself about the appropriateness of sampling something like an African field recording or, you know, something like that, that I, I got from the internet, or I don't even know what the original source of it may be. And I wonder if the way that I use it matters, if I use it in a tasteless novelty song, as opposed to like a serious music composition at the extreme, there's the, the question of sampling like a sacred medicine ceremony, which is where I would definitely draw a line. And again, what does the fact that I'm a white guy matter in the equation? And if I were a rich white guy or a poor white guy, would that change it? I don't know. It's kind of a mess when you get into the weeds of all of all of that, but uh, does that bring up any other thoughts from you? Well, you know, appropriation is a big 
conversation now. I could speak from my own experience. Um, I know that my own sample voicings, if you listen back to some of my earlier instrumental pieces, they were Mideast influenced. Yeah. And I felt a particular way, even though I was still keeping my sample ethics intact. You know, I felt like I wasn't challenging myself because I was just finding another obscure music form to dig through and, you know, give voice to on one side. But since I wasn't clearing the material, there was another side to it. So from listening through those records, I found ways to take other instruments and put them in those tunings and get under the hood of how those records work and how, you know, those voicings work. And um, once I did that, it kind of opened up my composition in a big way because I was able to have those voicings on synthesizer, you know, and, and keyboards as well as sampling. So I feel better now because when I'm working in those spaces, it's more original and I don't have to deal with that side of the discussion in terms of yeah. cultural appropriation and this and that. So, you know, it's a good starting point to, you know, get under the hood of those rhythms. H. Prism will return next time for a full-length conversation. I feel like maybe there's more to be discussed on the ethics of sampling, so if anyone wants to add to the conversation, feel free to write in, or better yet, record yourself and send it to weirdrap3000 at gmail.com. Now, on each episode, I like to let people know about another podcast that I enjoy. So this time, I'll mention Open Mike Eagle and Prince Paul's series, What Had Happened Was, which explores Prince Paul's history as one of hip-hop's most groundbreaking and creative producers. I've always enjoyed hearing him speak on podcasts, as well as Open Mike Eagle, who has some older podcasts that you can still find and which I'd also recommend. Those are Secret Skin, which is supposedly returning later this summer after some years of absence, and Conversation Parade, which is about Adventure Time, and which I found surprisingly engrossing. Also, Prince Paul used to have a pretty great and hilarious radio show called The Ill Out Show, which I can't really find online anymore, unfortunately. But I did repost one episode along with a lot of other treasures that I unearthed on the new Weird Rap SoundCloud account. The URL, as you might guess, is soundcloud.com slash weirdrap. Now music reviews. About Time is a new EP by Jadacy out of London with production by Navy Blue and others. On the page, had to light them up to last of my days on the path it get dark, get past in the way wasn't my last, it got lost, could've laughed that away, I swear. I couldn't laugh again. Match made at that stage with halls on the page. Had to stay sane, sit up and I maintain in the one five, you know it's the same thing. Get yeah. one life, gonna live if it ain't me. Ain't sleep, I'm living in street dreams. In the show notes I'll include links to it, along with the other releases I'll be mentioning. And the damage done is a new album by Mero. Yeah, these kids is 
ground, caps back to peace, no patience. Life ain't black and white like Japanese animated pages. Space age, ace spades, layman's. Motor red birds like surgical I'm ascending. Let me mention there's no ending. Just day to day, what's fucking trending? Betty machine, 99 dollar doppelganger culture. Lost the dream, hip hop, and all the means. Stop, prestige, gotta lock on my seams. And the weirdest rap album of the month, and possibly the year, contending only with Black Light by Zero, is Palo Phantasmo's Book of Brew by Mr. Yoti, who, by the way, is on the amazing Weird Rap compilation album at weirdrap.bandcamp.com and elsewhere. And hopefully we'll get Mr. Yodi on a future podcast because I'd really like to get inside his head in the fantastical universe that he's created for his various rap alter egos. You'll find a more complete and regularly updated list of notable new releases at reddit.com slash r slash weird rap or Facebook slash weird rap. But really, we should boycott Facebook. Died of a condition of the heart. If you know what I mean, flying apart spiritually, smarter than me, accidentally slicing the pulmonary artery. That was an excerpt of Heart Complications by Lil Ghost Rider, who you may remember from his appearance on the last episode in which he discussed schizophrenia as it relates to rap music. Well, by the time you hear this, Weird Rap Records should have a very limited supply of vinyl picture discs of Lil Ghost Rider's EP, Inner Plenum. Gathering Tripoli of hippies who couldn't name the members of the Wu-Tang Clan. Yet their critique of hip-hop stands. Inequality between the women and man. You can stream Interplenum on all the various platforms, and you can purchase it with a bonus track at weirdrap.bandcamp.com or audiorecon.bandcamp.com. You can keep more up to date on all the weird rap happenings by signing up for the Weird Rap Newsletter, following Weird Rap Radio on Spotify and Weird Rap TV on YouTube. You'll find links to those and even more weird rap things at weirdrap.com. Again, there's a bonus episode featuring more of my conversations with Cambada and Nate Patron, available via patreon.com slash weirdrap. And if you rate and review the podcast, I will send you a Weird Rap sticker in return. Just contact me about it at weirdrap3000 at gmail.com. Till next time, fight normalcy. Man, we can walk on water. Peace, peace.